add my greeting to uh, Jim's and just welcome you here this morning, particularly if this is your very first time to be with us here at Foothill Bible Church. Can't think of a better place to be personally, so I'm really glad you're here to be with us. So we get started here this morning. Open your Bibles with me, please, to uh, John chapter 12. John 12, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, open it up to page 1076, page 1076, you'll arrive at the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. John 12, we're just going to be looking at two verses this morning, verses 42 and 43 in John's Gospel here. These are kind of summary verses actually for all that's gone before in the first 12 chapters. The Christian church has suffered sporadic persecution really since its inception. A read through the book of Acts records Paul's encounters with the Jewish authorities, the persecution that he endured at their hands. But as the book begins to further unfold, we see transition happening, and by AD 64, the persecution of the Christian church had been taken over by the Roman government. It was now Rome that was persecuting the believers, beginning with Nero and following through after that. But the Roman persecutions, at least the early Roman persecutions, were, were mostly localized, mostly regional, sporadic. And under that kind of persecution, actually the church did quite well. It not only survived, it thrived. It grew under that kind of pressure. They grew strong. They grew bold in their faith. But beginning by the late 2nd century, persecution had pretty much subsided. It was no longer a danger to be a Christian. Very few suffered for their faith. The general attitude of the Roman government by that time was that Christians were merely foolish or backwards kinds of people, but that they were not an inherent threat to national security, and so the Roman government didn't have any really organized persecution. But a funny thing happened. You would think the church would do well in that period, but it actually did not do well. The church grew lazy. The church grew lax. The church began to attract many casual kinds of adherents. There was no cost involved in being a follower of Jesus Christ, and and during that period, many aberrant doctrines, some of which that we still contend with today, began to find their way into the church. It was as if it had thrown its doors wide open and said, everybody, come on in. You don't need to change. Just come. But beginning in AD 249, everything changed. Everything changed. A new emperor rose to the throne. His name was Decius. He was a former general serving on the German frontier. He was a hard man. 
And so when he became emperor, he was determined to wipe out Christianity because he saw it as subversive enemies of the state. He believed that Christians were atheists. That the Christians were atheists because they refused to worship the traditional Roman gods. And he also believed that their refusal to worship those traditional gods were the reason that the Roman Empire was unraveling. That the troubles the Empire was experiencing were because the Christians refused to worship the traditional gods. So beginning in AD 250, he launched the first systematic empire-wide persecution of the Christian church. No longer could you flee from one part of the empire to another to escape it. Everywhere you went now, if you named Christ, you were in mortal danger. Decius made a command. His command was that all citizens must offer a sacrifice to the traditional gods once a year. A pledge of allegiance, as it were. And those that made that sacrifice were given a piece of paper called a Certificate of Compliance. A Certificate of Compliance. Those who refused to make that sacrifice or were unable or unwilling to obtain a fraudulent certificate were imprisoned and tortured until they would deny Christ by saying, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. They would be relentlessly pursued and hounded until they would offer the pinch of incense and publicly say, Caesar is Lord. Those Christians who refused were called confessors. Those who complied were called the lapsed. Confessors and the lapsed. And in some parts of the empire, three quarters of the church lapsed. Three quarters. Well, in A.D. 251, Decius was killed in battle. And the persecution ended. But now the church had a massive problem on its hands. What do we do with the lapsed? Do we admit them back into the fellowship of the church? Do we just pretend it didn't happen? Or what are we going to do? Some church fathers taught that the lapse could be readmitted into the church and accepted at the communion table based upon the excess merit of those brave confessors, those who did not lapse. In Carthage, North Africa, this was kind of systematized by the Bishop Cyprian. Cyprian proposed this solution. He called it penance. Penance. What penance meant is that the lapse could demonstrate their repentance and gain readmission to the communion table by coming before the congregation in sackcloth with ashes on their foreheads 
and confessing their sin. And thus began the practice of penance and the treasury of merit. Practices which grew to be an abusive system that by the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther railed against such abuses in his 95 Thesis, which sparked the Protestant Reformation. What are we to think about people who apostatize under the threat of torture or death? What are we to think about all of that? Are they really believers? What about when their lives are not threatened? What about when the threat comes to someone's financial standing? Or maybe their business? Maybe their personal reputation? What then? What about people who claim to follow Christ but never take a public stand for Him. They never speak of Him. They never evangelize the lost. They never speak about Christ to anyone other than another Christian. What do we think about that? Is there any such thing as a secret disciple? Is that possible? Can someone actually be saved and never tell anyone about it? Is personal evangelism essential to true discipleship? And is true discipleship essential to true conversion? These two verses in John's Gospel bring us face to face with what I think is one of the most vexing questions of pastoral ministry. That question is, is so-and-so a believer or not? Are they really a believer or not? In John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, the Apostle clearly says, there that certain rulers of the people believed. But he then goes on to criticize their faith in some very strong terms. They're said to believe, but they certainly don't act like it. You add to that various other Scripture passages that touch on this subject, and we have the makings of a genuine conundrum, a puzzlement. Now, whether at the end of the day you personally think the believers spoken of here in John 12, 42, and 43 are genuine or not is, is really irrelevant. Whether I think they're genuine or not is, is really irrelevant. God alone knows and is able to judge such things. But there is a lesson to be learned here in this text this morning. Whether they are genuine believers or not, that's not the lesson. There is one fact, though, that is absolutely sure here. And that is that they had a reprehensible faith. A reprehensible faith. A faith deserving of rebuke. Censure. Blameworthy. Not the kind of faith 
we're called on to emulate. You know, John wrote this Gospel so that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they might have life in His name. John 20, verse 31. The belief, though, that John is trying to engender here in this Gospel is not some sort of casual or haphazard belief. It is a full and deep trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Son of Man, Messiah of Israel, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A truth that once a person embraces it must be publicly proclaimed from one end of creation to the other. Any kind of faith less than that is inadequate. It must be abandoned. As we look at this text this morning, I want you to see three characteristics. Three characteristics of reprehensible faith so that we will abandon them in our own lives. If any one or more of these is true of you this morning, it is my prayer, it is my hope, and it is indeed my goal that when we're done, you would abandon such things. Reprehensible faith is silent, it is cowardly, and it is self-serving. Silent, cowardly, and self-serving. Let me just read the text. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Wow. Reprehensible faith is silent. That is the first characteristic. Look back just a little bit, a few verses, to verse 37, where it says, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. John's kind of summary statement for this gospel here is that in spite of the miracles that Jesus had done, and John gives us seven of them here in the first 12 chapters, in spite of the miracles that Jesus had done, miracles that were intended to generate belief and faith among now, a question that naturally arises is, what well, does he mean the whole nation refused? Everybody disbelieved? Well, we know the answer to that, of course, right? I mean, there were certainly the disciples. And beyond that, at Pentecost, 3,000 believed. Of course, Pentecost was after the resurrection. We're talking here prior to the crucifixion. But John's verdict here is that the whole nation disbelieved. And down to verse 42, he says, But nevertheless, but nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him. Interesting construction here. The very strong adversative that John uses to indicate that not everybody disbelieved. 
So the statement in verse 37 that says, yet they were not believing in Him, that is, the nation was not believing in Him, nevertheless, there were some. There were some. He says that many of the rulers, again, verse 42, do you see it? Many even of the rulers believed in Him. That is the members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the nation of Israel. But you still have that question. Was your faith genuine? Was it saving faith? Well, verse 42, it says they believed in Him. That's a very common construction in John's Gospel. In fact, he uses the same expression in a number of places. Chapter 2, verse 23. Chapter 7, verse 31. Chapter 8, verse 30. To speak of others who believed, but there it's clear those that believed had a spurious, a phony, a fake kind of faith. So the statement itself that nevertheless many even of the rulers believed in Him is not sufficient for us to know for sure whether this was a genuine saving faith or not because that same expression as I say used earlier of others that clearly did not have saving faith. Beloved, the New Testament is really, really clear. Really clear. Faith that does not confess Christ is not saving faith. You can write that down. Faith that does not confess Christ is not a saving faith. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Or Paul's formulation, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So what kind of faith are we talking about here in verse 42? Well, through the centuries, theologians have spoken of three types of faith. Three different types of faith. They use fancy Latin words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, to speak of these three types of faith. Notitia could translate as acquaintance. So there's acquaintance faith. There is a census, which you could translate as acceptance. So there's acceptance faith. There's acquaintance faith. There's acceptance faith. And then there is fiducia or trust faith. So what is this acquaintance faith, this notitia that theologians commonly speak of? Well, many people know about Christ. Many people know about Him. They know about His birth, they know about His death, they know about His resurrection. But they really don't believe what they know. They don't believe it. Whether consciously or not, they create exceptions in their mind to that which they know. 
So they never really deal with it. They never process it. They never come to any kind of conviction with regard to its truth. It's just sort of a historical fact thing that rolls around in their mind. Noticia. That's sort of the lowest grade of faith, if you will. Next, theologians speak of a census or acceptance faith. Acceptance faith. This is those people who know about Christ and they believe what they know. They know about Christ and they believe what they know. They're sure that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. They're sure of it. In fact, I suspect that this is the kind of faith that many have when they speak of accepting Jesus as their Savior. They know this about Him. They believe it to be true. But they still hold it off at an arm's length. They still know it and believe it, but in some kind of abstract fashion. It's still outside of them, if you will. Let me illustrate this if I can. On June 30th, 1859, the French tightrope walker Charles Blunden became the first man to walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls. More than 25,000 people gathered to watch him walk the 1,100 feet suspended on a tiny cable 160 feet above the raging waters at the top of the falls. He worked without any net and without any safety harness. Nuts. Okay, he was nuts. <laughs> the slightest slip would prove fatal. When he safely crossed that 1,100-foot cable and reached the Canadian side, the crowd burst into a roar of applause. The days that followed, Blondin would walk across the falls many times. Once he did it on a pair of stilts. Another time he took a chair and a stove with him and he sat down midway across and cooked an omelet and ate it. Once he carried his manager across riding piggyback. Once he even pushed a wheelbarrow loaded with 350 pounds of cement across the tightrope. One occasion he asked the cheering spectators if they thought he could push a man across sitting in the wheelbarrow. The mighty roar of approval, right? The crowd said, sure, you can do it, you can do it, go for it. He looked down at one guy who was just cheering him on there in the front row and he said, sir, do you think I could carry you safely across in that wheelbarrow? Sure, of course you could. Get in. No. Nope. See, that's acceptance faith. That's acceptance faith. It won't get in the wheelbarrow. Just won't get into the wheelbarrow. And that takes us to what theologians speak of as fiducia or trust. The third type of faith, fiducia or trust in Christ. 
This is not only agreement with regard to the facts of the Gospel, but it's a personalization. It's an embracement of those facts for yourself. It's more than believing that Jesus died in order to save sinners or even that Jesus died in order to save me from my sin. But it's the deeply held conviction that I am a wretched sinner deserving to go to hell. And that indeed I am going there unless God does something about it. It is a throwing oneself upon the mercy of God, calling out for Him to save you because nothing else can. It's a commitment to live the rest of your life, not for your pleasure and your glory, but for His and His alone. Fiducia. Trust. Going back to John 12.42 here, some postulate that maybe what was spoken of here is the secret disciples. They call to mind the examples of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. You remember? Those that came to Jesus or Nicodemus by night first, and Joseph of Arimathea, who it says right here in this Gospel, was a secret disciple. But see, the problem is for both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea is that eventually they went public. They had to go public. You can't remain a secret disciple forever. One writer put it this way. He said, quote, either secrecy kills the discipleship or discipleship kills the secrecy. Either secrecy kills the discipleship or discipleship kills the secrecy. They cannot coexist forever. First characteristic of reprehensible faith is that it is silent. It is silent. Second characteristic of reprehensible faith, that it is cowardly. It is cowardly. Look again, verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. The Pharisees controlled the synagogues in Israel. There was the temple in Jerusalem where all religious Jews were required to come three times a year for various feasts and festivals. But the day-to-day religious life of the community of Israel was conducted in the synagogues, and there were synagogues in virtually every single community in the whole nation. It was there where the people of God gathered. It was there where they worshipped together, interacted together. And these synagogues were controlled by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the holy men. There are about 5,000 of them in the nation. They were looked up to and they were also feared. They were the ones who were 
the keepers of the law of Moses. They're the ones who knew all the laws down to the nth degree and kept every single one of them, or at least outwardly so. In a sense, they held the keys to the kingdom. If you wanted access to the God of Israel, it came through the synagogues, and the synagogues were controlled by the Pharisees, and so thus they controlled the access to God. Now earlier in this same Gospel, chapter 9, verse 22, John tells us the Pharisees had already agreed among themselves that anyone who confessed that Jesus was the Christ, that is the Messiah of God, was going to be put out of the synagogue. They were going to be excommunicated from the synagogue. Now to be put out of the synagogue means to be excommunicated from the life of the nation of Israel. It means a severing of all your social ties, all your religious affiliations, all of your economic ties, even your family ties. If you are put out of the synagogue, you are cut off from everything that you know and hold to be dear in life. Folks, there were no religious alternatives in those days. You'll put out of this synagogue. You couldn't just go down the street and go to another one. It wasn't like you leave First Baptist and you go to Second Baptist, right? And when you leave Second Baptist, you go to Third Baptist. You got it. You were put out of the synagogue. You had been cut off from society. Cut off. Beyond that, these rulers in Israel were men of position. They were men of social standing. They were men of wealth and men of power. These were the movers and the shakers of society. So to forfeit all of that, simply to speak out in favor of the Nazarene was more than they were willing to sacrifice. Is a price too high to pay? Day in, day out, they kept their opinion to themselves. You see where it says they were not confessing Him. Literally in the Greek, in perfect tense, they were determined to destroy Him. And so these rulers here were unwilling to run that risk. Now, it's not that there's, we don't have any fear when it comes to speaking out for Christ. I mean, there is a certain measure of, of apprehension. There's a, there's a, the mouth gets a little dry. The stomach gets a little tight and tense, right? I mean, I understand that. It happens to me all the time. So there is a, a certain fear involved in all of that. It's, it's natural to be somewhat afraid particularly when you enter into an unknown or potentially dangerous situation. But folks, it's what we do with our fear that determines whether we are a coward or not. To fear is not to be a coward. It is what you do with your fear that determines whether you are a coward or not. 
cowards allow fear to paralyze them. Cowards allow fear to paralyze them. By the way, the Scripture is very, very clear when it comes to cowardice regarding the Gospel. Roman, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. It puts cowardliness on the first on the list of eight sins that consign a person to the lake of fire. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. To be a coward when it comes to the Gospel is no small matter. It is very, very serious. There was a young man many, many, many years ago who struggled with cowardice. He was a coward. He struggled with cowardice with regard to the Gospel. So the Apostle Paul wrote to that young man. His name was Timothy. And right near the end of Paul's life, he was awaiting the, the Roman executioner's blade to remove his head from his shoulders. And he wrote one last letter to Timothy to exhort him, to encourage him, to strengthen him in his faith because Paul's not going to be there that much longer. And Timothy has to carry on. So Paul writes to him in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He, just, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God. Timothy, do not be ashamed. Beloved, reprehensible faith is silent. Reprehensible faith is cowardly. Third, reprehensible faith is self-serving. Reprehensible faith is self-serving. Look again at John 12. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. I mean, these, these men here were evidently convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. That was not in doubt anymore. But they decided that it was in their best interests to wait until Jesus had established His kingdom, I guess, and until it became clear to everyone, and then they would say, yeah, I'm on His team too. Let's wait until He scores the winning touchdown, and then I'll put on my team shirt. They were not willing to reveal themselves before the final outcome. 
Look at verse 43 again. John gives the reason for this fear. This failure to speak up. This inability to confess their faith in Christ. It was their desire to fit in and to be well thought of by others. Do you see it? For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They were governed by an attitude of self-interest. Self-interest. They valued the good opinion of mortal men rather than the good opinion of Almighty God. And that, by the way, is an easy trap to fall into. They were willing to trade temporal peace and prosperity for the possibility of eternal damnation. It's a crazy bargain to make. They were unwilling to take to heart the warning that Jesus gave earlier in the same chapter over verse 25. He says, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Folks, if it's all about this world, Jesus says, you're going to lose that. You cannot hold on to it. But if it's about the next world, then you'll make decisions today that will benefit you there. James chapter 4, verse 4. Speaking of a similar issue, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, everyone who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's not that you can have both. See, that's the illusion. The idea is somehow, well, I can still hold on to this and grab on to that. But you can't. To grab on to Christ requires you to let go of everything else. Kind of reminded of a squirrel I saw one time. It was running around trying to pick up acorns. It picked up, you know, it had an acorn, and then it saw another one, it picked that one up, saw another one, picked that up. Pretty soon it, it had, you know, its little paws full of acorns. Then it saw one more big acorn. And it went over to get that one, and it was in a it was in a quandary. How do you pick up the big one when you got all? There's only one way to get the big one. You got to let go of the little ones. You got to let go. You know, it's as if these these men here, spoken of in John 12, it's as if they had taken a balance scale, putting the approval of men on one side, the approval of God on the other. And wait it out. But if you were to do that, there's no comparison. It is God's approval that counts in the end. If ambition has a greater influence over you than the fear of God then it follows you will trade your attachment to God for the good opinion of men. Do you understand that? If 
Your ambition has a greater influence on you or over you than the fear of God. You will trade your attachment to Christ for the good opinion of men. Who do you want to be in life? What do you want written on your tombstone? John Calvin wrote, and I quote him, Earthly honors may be said to be golden handcuffs which bind a man so that he cannot perform his duty with freedom. Earthly honors are like golden handcuffs. They bind us so that we cannot do what we should do. They snap right on there just as tight. If it's all about the here and now, you'll trade the later. You know, following Christ is a costly decision. It's expensive to follow Jesus Christ. The New Testament is exceedingly clear on this. It requires the selling of all that we have and hold dear in this life. And it's based upon the promise of something infinitely better in the life to come. That's why it's a faith proposition. You cannot see it out there except with eyes of faith. And you must divest yourself here in order to invest there. Jesus said it's like a man who stumbles upon a treasure in a field. And for joy over it, he goes and he sells everything that he has and he returns to buy the field. Or he says again, it's like finding one jewel so valuable that we're willing to sell all of our other treasures in order to obtain that one prized stone. Paul said it's a, a willingness to perform any task, suffer any pain, count your earthly privileges as dung, all for the prize of knowing Christ Jesus as your Savior. So what price are you willing to pay? What price are you willing to pay? What will you give up that you might grab a hold of Christ? What about your reputation? What about your reputation among your coworkers? Maybe your fellow students at school, family members, friends. Are you willing to be thought stupid for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to be mocked, to be laughed at, to be ostracized for the sake of Christ? Maybe personal comfort. Are you willing to restrict your lifestyle to follow Christ? What's it worth to you? 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks of the churches of Macedonia, how they gave out of their poverty and above and beyond because of their love for Jesus Christ. They weren't just some fat cats digging in for some pocket change. 
They were the poor and they gave abundantly. Because they realized that you can't take it with you. That this life is only, as, the, as James says, it's like vapor above a cup of coffee. It is here and it is gone. Will you give up the illusion that you control your own life? For the certainty that He controls it? Oh, we love to hold on to that illusion, don't we? Captain of my own ship. I don't know how many graduation speeches I've endured at high schools where they talk about being captain of your own ship. What a bunch of stuff. <laughs> you know? <laughs> captain of your own ship. Really? Did you control the day you were born? Did you control the family you were born into? Did you control the country you were born into? How about the city or state? Time of day? What did you control? How about your death? Do you know when you're going to die? Do you know where you're going to die? Do you know how you're going to die? Do you know when you're going to die? You don't control anything. Nothing. Not from the beginning and not the end. And if you don't control the beginning and you don't control the end, you don't control anything in between either. So give up on it. Or how about your kind of related concept, your independence? Your independence, right? Nobody is going to tell me what to do. I make my own decisions. I decide what I'm going to do. Nice. Are you going to give up your independence for the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Huh? You're going to give it up? Folks, why were those people back in the third century willing to be tortured? To have their arms pulled out of the socket? To have pieces plucked off their tongues by hot irons? Fingers and feet smashed and mutilated? Why? I mean, all they had to do was offer a pinch of Incense and say Caesar is Lord and then say see you later. I mean, after all, I can still believe that Jesus is Lord, right? I just got to do that little thing and then they leave me alone. Well, they weren't willing to do it. They would rather be maimed than say Caesar is Lord. Why? Because he's not Lord. That's why. It's not true. It's not true. It's an illusion. It's a fable. You can't build your life on that. They had come to the absolute persuasion that there is only one Lord and it is Christ. Christ is Lord. And if Christ is Lord, then Caesar isn't. And you can do what you want to me. I'm not going to say it. Where's that kind of conviction today? Where's that kind of courage? We're living in a bubble. We're living in a bubble like they were at the end of the second century. Here in the U.S. of A. 
Folks, there may well be a time and in perhaps not too distant future when it's going to become dangerous to be known as a Christian. A time when the government will declare Christians to be a threat to national security because they are intolerant and divisive. Because they refuse to go along with what's considered public policy and the good of the whole. Because they're the kind of people who so irritatingly stand up and say, I won't say Caesar is Lord. Because Christ is Lord. There may be a time when the elders of the church are drug out and beat. And someone lobs a bomb through the back door. I mean, it happens... In other parts of the world, doesn't it? What makes us think it'll never happen here? What are you doing to get yourself ready? How are you preparing yourself? How are you preparing your children? If such a time arrives, are your spiritual muscles firm or flabby? How many spiritual push-ups can you do? What are you going to do when you're called on to stand firm? What are you going to do? There are undoubtedly some here this morning whose spiritual muscles are flabby. Maybe they're flabby because... You haven't taken your faith seriously enough. Maybe you're still playing on the edges a little. You'll give Jesus this much of your life, but there are certain sections that you're holding back. Then again, maybe you've never given Him your life at all. Maybe you've never risen above a census. You've accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you don't know Him. Deep down inside, you don't really know Him. You have never embraced Him by faith and abandoned your life to Him. Maybe you still haven't believed that Jesus is Lord. Folks, He is. He is. The Apostle Paul says that at one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone. Everyone in this room will someday acknowledge that. If you acknowledge it now, this side of the grave, by faith, you are a Christian. But you will acknowledge it. Because if it's not done by faith, this side of the grave, it will be done, as it were, at the point of a spear on the other side. You will bend your knee. Because Jesus is Lord.
If you're here with us this morning and this is your first time, I'm really, really happy you could be here. I'm really glad you could come, you could be with us, you could hear the Word of God. Maybe you've heard some things this morning you've never heard before. Maybe nobody has ever spoken so directly to you before. I speak to you directly because I care. See, if I just tell you a bunch of stuff that makes you feel good, I haven't done anything for you. If I confront you with the reality of the judgment of God that will certainly come down upon your sin, unless you repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace Him and His sacrifice. Throw yourself upon Him. Plead with Him for His mercy. If I don't tell you these things, I've done you no good. We finish here in a moment or two. After we sing, there will be some folks over here by this lighted cross. Appropriate, huh? Flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. You have no other hope. There's no other place to go. Let me pray. Our Father, we have nothing to offer You that would incline you toward us. As the prophet said, what can a man offer for the sin of his soul? Can he give his firstborn child? Will that do? No. Nothing. All that I am, all that I have, contaminated by my sin, by my guilt, I deserve judgment. I have violated every one of your Ten Commandments in thought, word, and deed. I am guilty. But I beseech you to be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on that cross for me. I believe that You poured out on Him the punishment that I deserve. I believe that He drank the cup of Your wrath in its entirety. Every single drop. I believe that when I embrace Him by faith, that His perfect righteousness is now mine. I am covered, as it were, with a with a robe of righteousness, a, a cloak has been draped around me. Our Father, You see not my filth, but You see the purity of Christ and You welcome me in as Your child, Your Son. I believe that You have done this for me. For the glory of God the Father. Amen.